0: A little before Gary Ferguson's wife was taken from him in a tragic canoe accident, she said something that he'll never forget.
1: She laid her paddle down on her lap, and she looked up to the sky, and she said, thank you, universe.
0: Coming up, we'll hear how the wilderness can play many roles in our lives. Swimmer Diana Nyad tells us how her record-setting open-ocean swim from Cuba to Florida allowed her to prove to herself that she really could beat the odds.
2: Who am I? Am I a person who commits to a big dream that maybe is untouchable, maybe can never be done, but it's worth the journey? And let's celebrate Women's
0: History Month at places that help define America, like Harriet Beecher Stowe's home in Hartford, Connecticut.
3: Which is devoted to issues of social justice and social reform, some of the same issues when she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin*.
0: It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. maybe the fifth time's the charm. For decades, Diana Nyad had wanted to swim one of the most dangerous ocean passages in the world. It wasn't until she was 64 years old that she finally completed the 111-mile crossing through shark-infested waters from Havana to Key West, and in doing so, she set a world record. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, we meet swimming legend Diana Nyad and learn the amazing story of how she did it. We'll also check in with naturalist Gary Ferguson. Gary explains how he was able to rely on the wilderness to help heal his grief after he lost his wife of 25 years in a whitewater canoeing accident. Since 1987, March has been designated Women's History Month here in the United States. There are a number of important sites you can visit to recognize the courage of women who have helped pave the way for a more equal and just society. To better understand their achievements, we're joined now by the Smithsonian's Director Emeritus of the National Museum of American History, Brent D. Glass. He's written a guide to essential historic sites all across the country. It's called 50 Great American Places. Brent, thanks for being
3: here. Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Uh, In your book, you list several sites that feature a woman or celebrate a woman's issue, Can you talk about some of the most important sites that we as Americans can visit when we road trip across our country to gain an appreciation of women in our culture and in our heritage?
3: I would start that journey in Seneca Falls, New York, uh, where the uh, Women's Rights Convention took place in July 1848. And what's remarkable about this convention, not only did the women at this convention, and men, by the way, adopt the, what they called the Declaration of Sentiments, in which they called for the uh, right for women to vote, but they organized this convention with just about three weeks' notice. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott and several of their colleagues decided over tea one day in uh, early July that they needed to have this convention to talk about women's rights and to adopt a uh, Declaration of Sentiments, what they called... And uh, three weeks later, 300 people uh, showed up, and uh, hmm. this is in the day before fax machines or internet or um, telephones, and they got the word out, and they, uh, men and women, convened in in Seneca Falls. And today, you can visit the Women's Rights Convention Historic Site, which is a National Park Service site, and uh, learn all about these extraordinary women uh, who persevered after uh, many many years to finally have the uh, 19th Amendment passed in 1919, which gave women the right to vote in federal elections.
0: So that was like 70 years later, and that sort of kicked it off in a lot of ways, 1848, and when we go to there in uh, Seneca Falls, New York, we find Elizabeth Kitty Stanton's home, part of the National Park, and physically, what else is there? What would we see when we visit?
3: We would see the uh, Wesleyan Chapel, which is the place where the convention took place. And Mm. uh, this chapel has been restored. It was used for many, many different uses after it it Mm -hmm. ceased use as a chapel. But somehow it was saved by the National Park Service Mm. and uh, faithfully restored. Mm. And you can uh, get some feeling of what it might have been like on that hot July weekend to debate these issues, and it was not a foregone conclusion that the convention would adopt the entire Declaration of Sentiments, and especially this uh, very radical idea of women voting. But they did, and um, 150 people who attended the convention, men and women, signed the uh, mm. the Declaration. Wow! Well, and, up- and there's also a museum there uh, next to the chapel where you can learn more about the history of women's rights and the women's rights movement.
0: Take us to another site that celebrates uh, impactful women in our history.
3: Only a few miles from uh, Seneca Falls is uh, Auburn, New York, where Harriet Tubman spent the last 50 years of her life. And there is a historic site there, and her home is open to the public, a very modest place on land that she purchased from William Seward, Abraham Lincoln's secretary of state. And the Seward home is also open to the public in Auburn. So that's a place that I would definitely put on my list. And Harriet Tubman now has achieved a new fame and notoriety because she will, her image will appear on the $20 bill.
0: So you could take a $20 bill there and spend it to get into Harriet Tubman's home.
3: I think that would be money well spent.
0: <laughs> and just very briefly, uh, Brent, what would we see when we go into Harriet Tubman's home? Is it simply a home from the middle yes, 19th century? 19th
3: it's a, century? a middle 19th century home, mm-hmm. early 20th century home, very modest. She was not a wealthy woman, mm-hmm. um, but the spirit of Harriet Tubman and what she Accomplished as a conductor on the Underground Railroad and later as a uh, advocate for um, social betterment of uh, elderly people. Mm. Uh, and she had a home there in Auburn where she continued to be very active, also in the women's suffrage movement. So in, and, in um, both of yeah.
0: these uh, sites, Seneca Falls and the home of Harriet Tubman, uh, women's rights and civil liberties still issues today. We've come a long way, but there's more to go. And, uh, That's right. Take us to another state. What's another site that uh, honors a woman?
3: In Hartford, Connecticut, the um, home of Harriet Beecher Stowe is now the center called the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, which is devoted to issues of social justice and social reform, some of the same issues that Harriet Beecher Stowe was concerned with when she wrote her novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. What people may not realize is that Harriet Beecher Stowe and Mark Twain were neighbors there in uh, Hartford for about 20 years. Hmm. And she uh, she was already the most famous writer in America and possibly in the in the world at that time, and uh, Mark Twain was just up and coming in the early 1870s when he built a rather grand, gilded age Victorian style house next door to Harriet Beecher Stowe. So that's worth a visit.
0: Brent Glass is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He was responsible for transforming the Smithsonian National Museum of American History into one of the most visited sites in Washington. Brent is recognized as a national leader in preserving and interpreting American history. He's written a guide to some of the most important cultural and historic sites that have shaped our national identity. It's called 50 Great American Places. In it, he includes tips for online research and nearby sites to help improve your historical literacy as you plan that great American history road trip. His website is brentdglass.com. Brent, in speaking of Harriet Beecher Stowe, I noticed in your book that you mentioned that Uncle Tom's Cabin became the second best-selling book in the U.S. in the 19th century after the Bible.
3: Yes, and she was not only revered in the United States, but also in, uh, in Europe. She took a triumphal tour of uh, Europe and Great Britain Mm -hmm. Um, after the publication of Uncle Tom's Cabin. She was uh, probably as big a celebrity in this country and even in in several other countries as anyone else uh, in the world.
0: And to this day, on that site, there is the Stowe Center that promotes uh, vibrant discussion of social justice issues.
3: That's right. And then another another woman that I think is worth uh, knowing, we have to go much further west out to Nebraska, to Red Cloud, Nebraska, where Willa Cather, the great novelist, lived. She was born in Virginia, but her family moved out to Nebraska with a number of other people leaving the east for the Midwest to try their hand at farming. Her family was not as successful at farming. They moved into this little town, and in her first 10 years or so, she absorbed much of what life was like for the homesteaders in the uh, 1880s and 1890s. And she wrote these amazing novels, um, My Antonia, O Pioneers, A Song of the Lark, which captured the life on the prairie in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And her books continue to be a great window on uh, what American history was like for those people, uh, many of them immigrants from Europe at that time the Willa Cather Foundation has preserved her home and a number of the buildings that she writes about in her novels and they've also preserved a 600 acre park that uh, is never been plowed prairie so this is mm-hmm. 600 acres that for some reason never was used for farmland and so you have a sense of the of the landscape that she wrote about in, wow. in her novels
0: that is so integral to the American story the whole westward movement and uh, yes. to have somebody uh, of her talent writing so vividly and intimately about the closing decades of the frontier period. That's a huge and uh, unsung contribution to our culture. Just so we can uh, a century later, imagine what it would be like to be a a mother gathering her children together in a storm shelter as a tornado approaches.
3: Well, she captured all of that, and um, the nice thing about Willa Cather is how accessible she is. Her books are assigned in high school, but adults can read it uh, at any age, and I I just uh, have come to really admire her power of description and her her gift, really, for um, creating these great characters that help us uh, understand what that period was like.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Brent Glass. His book is 50 Great American Places, Essential Historic Sites Across the U.S., and we're talking about great sites in America that feature great women in American history. So, Brent, we've been talking about four women so far who have sights about them. If you think about women's contribution to us appreciating the story of America, what else would you want to be sure we, we come away with?
3: There are so many women who I would say are anonymous in many ways for the work they did to preserve American history. The first preservation project in this country was accomplished by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association uh, who saved George Washington's home in Virginia. And the Alamo was saved by the daughters of the Republic of Texas. And Mesa Verde was uh, saved by uh, the work of enterprising women. And there are just so many Hmm. examples around the country. Uh, Even the Willow um, Cather home that I mentioned earlier was saved by a, a women's organization. One of my favorite quotes Comes from a a very famous woman, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, uh, when she was an advocate for preserving Grand Central Terminal in New York City in the 1970s. And she said, If our children are not inspired by the past of our city, where will they find the strength to fight for our future? And I just thought that was such a beautiful way to describe Mm -hmm. the importance of preserving history. If Hmm. our children are not inspired by the past how will they have the strength to fight for the future wow so i would I want love to uh, include jacqueline kennedy onassis is one of those uh, visionaries really who understood the importance and the power of place to help shape our identity
0: brent glass thank you so much for writing 50 great american places and as people read your book uh, what is one last thought that you hope they take away from that experience
3: I hope they realize that history is not inevitable, that uh, these events and these places didn't just become historic by accident, that people make decisions, they make choices, and the results are what we now understand to be history. But uh, we need to make sure that we understand the role of people in shaping history.
0: And collectively, these sites that, that you've listed in your book tell a big part of the story of our country. Thanks, Brent Glass, and best wishes with your work. Thank you so much. You can find links to our guests at ricksteves.com slash radio, and we look forward to your emails at radio at ricksteves.com. Up next, we meet a remarkable woman of today. Diana Nyad tells us how she never gave up and finally set the world's long-distance swimming record from Cuba to the Florida Keys. It's travel with Rick Steves. Never give up. It's more than just positive thinking for Diana Nyad. Diana set a long-distance open-water swimming record by swimming for 53 hours from Cuba to Florida in 2013. That's 111 miles. And she was 64 years old when she did it. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about the obstacles she had to overcome and how she finally set the world record and became the first person to ever swim across the shark-filled waters between Florida and Cuba. Her message, young or old, we can reach our dreams. Diana, thanks for being with
2: us. Rick, my pleasure. Thank you very much. What a way to travel. You know, I had a French mother. <laughs> and, when, you know, I started this uh, this voyage, shall we say, this journey from Cuba to Florida when I was young in my 20s. And my mother used to say, you know, I, I don't know. I I can get you a plane ticket. You don't <laughs> need to swim. Although, So that's been the constant joke, you know, all oh, through the years. Man.
0: A lot of us have, you know, swum a mile in a pool, 111 miles with currents and with sun and with dehydration, and it's just mind-boggling. Now, as I was reading through your book, I, I thought, you know, you must have had a lot of time to, to think as you prepared, and, and finally as as land came into sight and, and you're about to step ashore and dry land in Florida, what was your message to the crowd who gathered to greet you when you finally accomplished this?
2: You know, the, the humor of it is that I, I will admit to you that in all those solitary hours of training, and, and then, of course, you know, I had tried it four times before, and each time was a, a long, long number of hours in the water. One time, 51 hours. Another time, 48 hours, et cetera. And... I often, just to, you know, keep my mind busy, was uh, sort of ego tripping on what would be the oration, <laughs> what would be the the sweet poetry I would utter when I finally reached, it's kind of like the Greeks, you know, the that <laughs> other shore. But it didn't, Rick, it wasn't like that. I, I was dazed, both physically and emotionally. I had never thought of, though they were simple words, but I had never planned them, rehearsed them, thought of them ahead of time. And I just... I There were people weeping because they felt their own lives. They watched someone and a team who just refused to give up. And I just stood there and said, barely able to speak, you know, with the swollen mouth, et cetera, and said, yeah. I've got three things to say. One, never, ever give up. And there was a roaring of applause <laughs> like that. Yeah, that's what we want to hear. And the uh, second was you're never too old to chase your dreams and isn't it the truth? And the third was, it looks, and I was going down at that point. I've, I've seen that video. I barely got out the last word, but I said, <laughs> it looks like the most solitary endeavor in the world, but trust me, it takes a team. And when I said team, I kind of hit the floor, hit the beach. <laughs> that that was the last word I had in me.
0: That is so beautiful. And obviously, when you read your book, the, the team was integral to the whole mm. experience. Oh, Yes. Now, why the Cuba to Florida journey? Is is that sort of the ultimate, uh, is that the Mount Everest of open ocean swimming or something?
2: It is. It has been considered that. There, there are two factors to it. One is just the clear, you know, number of obstacles that are out there for a swimmer. I mean, clearly you can't swim a a distance like this in the polar ice caps. But other than that, if you and I were to grab all the nautical charts of the Earth's surface and put them down in in your studio across the floor, we couldn't find a more difficult swim, a more challenging swim with the number of obstacles. Vegas rated this swim at a .004 percent chance Mm -hmm. of anyone making it because you've got that huge raging Gulf stream mm-hmm. that is screeching to the east six times faster than your swim speed. You're trying to go to the north. Mm. Within that stream, you've got counterclockwise eddies, some of them a quarter mile across, some of them 25 miles across. Once you get into the arm of one of those swirling eddies, you're done. You can never get out unless you're in a boat or, or you get out on the boat and you quit. Then you've got the, you know, the raging seas that come up. You're out in a dead calm. Two minutes later, literally a 60-mile-an-hour wind Pops up because those winds come off Africa mm. and they come traveling across the Atlantic 6,000 miles. So I could go on and on. It's mm. just a, it's a potpourri of difficulties for a swimmer and it has been called the Mount Everest. Then on the other hand, what attracted me to it and many people is history, geography. You know, the reason people first swam across the English Channel, you know, they call it a blue jewel of a planet. We could pick a million hundred mile distances or 21 mile distances here or there. The Hellespont is famous. You know, the Catalina Island swim is famous. But the English Channel back in 1875, when Captain Matthew Webb first swam it, that's His history between the British Isles and the continent of Europe, it's Charlemagne, it's the Battle of Hastings. (laughs) And, you know, in the end, it was World War II. It was it was everything. And Cuba, I dare say, I don't think there's a more storied body of water on our planet today than that, you know, that stretch between Florida and that forbidden. Bidden island yeah. that since 1959 we have not been able to visit and they have not been able to come here. So wow. that was clearly part of the draw for me was connecting our peoples.
0: Before we leave the English Channel, how many miles is the English Channel?
2: You know, it's unfortunate because when you do the English Channel, you swim quite a few miles. You're heading out toward the North Sea. You're heading back toward the Atlantic Ocean. You're traversing. But uh, in all these swims, you only get to count point A to point B. Like in Cuba, my final swim was 110.86 miles. Uh-huh. And don't, don't forget the .86. That, oh, that's yeah. the part that'll kill you.
0: But that's the way the crow flies.
2: That's the way the crow flies and that's what you count. You don't, you know, if you happen to have been swept off there for a while or you yeah. went off course and you spent many hours going east and west, you count exactly where you left the shore and when you touched the other shore.
0: So what would that crow fly in, in England to France?
2: It's only counted as 21 miles. 21.
0: So you did five times that.
2: Oh yeah, this is a and believe me, I have respect for all the swims. <laughs> all the swims on the planet, but this is a this is a different kettle of fish, Cuba.
0: Diana Nyad's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Diana's one of the world's most accomplished swimmers. Her 111-mile open-water swim from Havana to Key West set a world record. It also showed that determination can overcome almost any obstacle when pursuing a lifelong dream. She writes about it all in her memoir called Find a Way. Her website is diananyad.com that's spelled N-Y-A-D. What about the, the political subtext? You, you swam from Cuba to Florida, not Florida to Cuba. Was there anything, any backstory about that?
2: Well, a part of the backstory is that I wanted to finish in my country. Mm-hmm. That was my home state, also of Florida. I grew up as a kid during the revolution, looking out over that water, saying, mm-hmm. "Where, where is it? Where is that forbidden, mystical land of Cuba?" <laughs> and then there is the Gulf Stream. Uh, I dare say I, I don't even think a Michael Phelps could go against that stream. Oh, okay. So it always goes east, and occasionally you get a little axis of a bump up toward the northeast but it never goes south
0: so you got current you got wind but also under the water you got sharks and you got jellyfish now i understand jellyfish almost killed you with one attempt and then there's an asterisk with your accomplishment because you made this swim and and you have to qualify it by saying you did it without a shark cage and that must make a, a, a difference people before have done it with a shark cage
2: it is a big deal, and people from the sport understand it. For people outside the sport, think, well, you know, you just wanted to be a, a badass and face the sharks face to face. But it really isn't about that. Whenever you're in a structure like a big steel cage, you're safe, and I don't blame anybody for using a cage. I've used them in the past myself. But you don't want an asterisk next to your name, then you don't use a cage because little eddies. Even if you're going slowly, mm. that cage is bouncing along at about two miles an hour mm-hmm. which isn't a bad average for all those hours and little eddies come swirling around the side this is how Jack LaLanne moved the Queen Mary little eddies come around the side and then those eddies come pushing up the back of the cage and pretty soon the cage starts going twice then three times then four times your speed oh, so okay. add that to your vector and within a cage you're swimming much faster than you do without the cage so, oh, so that's, that's a real why, advantage. yeah it's a big advantage
0: this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Diana Nyad. Her book is Find a Way, the inspiring story of one woman's pursuit of a lifelong dream. About her 111-mile swim through the treacherous waters from Cuba to Florida. Diana, you've done other big swims. You've swum around mi- Manhattan, right?
2: I did. You know, I was 25 years old and uh, never expected anything to come of it. I, I thought it was a, you know, a great adventure. I started off just with a A guy on a broken down, you know, fishing boat with a couple of friends of mine. By the end of the day, the New York Times and the BBC and the Tonight Show were all swarming around. It wound up being a big deal and it it sort of launched my career. I had already been an ocean swimmer, but Manhattan. You know, they mm. say if if you make it there, you make it anywhere. Ah, right. And uh, Manhattan kind of made my career as an athlete.
0: And that was about an eight-hour swim, right? Yeah,
2: it's a, just a little dip. I mean, you're yeah. you know, you're you're <laughs> off to a party that night. You're feeling pretty good, yeah.
0: Because I, I mean, when I read and saw the photographs of you after this 53-hour well, swim from Cuba to Florida, it is brutal. Now let's talk just about some of the reality of being out under the sun in the salt water, nibbled at by jellyfish, all of that. You had quite a lot of gear on you just to be protected, didn't you? I mean, swimming is to be free. That's one of the anthems of a swimmer, but you had all that gear on. That must hamstring that experience a bit.
2: It, it was uh, hell to swim with. You know, when we say nibbled by jellyfish, it's it's a bad verb, Rick, because... <laughs> There are jellyfish, thousands of species of jellyfish, most of which are not pleasant. You know, nobody likes to go under the sting of a Portuguese man of war. But nobody, as far as I know, has ever died from any of those stings except for the box jellyfish. And there are actually... Many hundreds of species of that animal too But the particular box That now swarms between Cuba and Florida Is deadly Most people who have been touched by that tentacle Die instantaneously Most swimmers who have ever been touched By them and live to tell the tale Have said never ever am I going back In those waters And so I decided to go back And there are certain rules in marathon swimming That you can never use any flotation device You can't use neoprene You can't use fins You can't hold on to a boat. You can't get out on the boat, et cetera, et cetera. But in order to protect life or death, Mm. in this case, with no hyperbole, I wore a thin, what they call a stinger suit. And you are allowed a stinger suit. And I wore uh, latex gloves, less very surgeons' latex gloves. They Mm -hmm. make swimming difficult. As you say, you want to be free. And it's already, imagine, difficult enough to swim for two plus days nonstop. Uh, But now, during the night, Every time dusk would come and all the way till dawn, I would have to to make sure that that tentacle did not sting me again, as it did mm. in 2011, put on all this gear. And it was uh, it was tough to swim with. I just I couldn't wait for the morning. I would beg my head trainer, Bonnie, to for the moment. Is, is mm. it dawn enough yet for me to take this stuff off, especially the mask? The mask was difficult to swim with.
0: So the danger was after dark for the jellyfish?
2: Yeah, that's when they swarm. They come up. Okay. Uh, they're photosensitive. Yeah. So you, you can find a box jellyfish occasionally in the daylight, but usually not. They die when they come up. They're like vampires. They die at sunrise. So they uh, mm-hmm. they stay under, and then they come up at night, and they start feeding.
0: On a swim like this, it's 53 hours. Do you get a break on the boat? No, uh, oh, you, no. You, you, you oh, can't no. touch the boat the whole time? No. No sleeping?
2: No, there's, there's no sleep. There's never touching the boat. You can't get out on the boat. It's done. I mean, if there is an immediate shark attack, if there's right. a true life or death emergency and you have officials on the boat with you right. who are not part of right. your team, they're independent observers, they will allow a, a short break if you're right. truly, you're being attacked. Right. Uh, and, and that would be true of the box jellyfish as well, but very short, just a few minutes and they feel you're out of danger, you're back in
0: hydration uh, eating how did you take yeah, care of all just,
2: that yeah you just you come over close to the boat your trainer's hand you either a camelback hose so that you can use all fours to tread water and take that down on electrolyte liquid uh-huh. i'm usually taking about 700 calories an hour here's the thing you can never take in the amount of fuel you're expending so you are starting to feel cold you're in the tropics that water, if you and I were to go on vacation down there and we dived in one day in the summer, you'd say, oh my God, it's like a it's like a bath. Mm. But it isn't a bath because it's not 98.6 degrees, it's 82. Mm. And after 30 hours, 40 hours, 50 hours, anything below 98.6, your body starts to travel toward that temperature and you start to feel cold and you go into hypothermia. So you try to eat, you try to drink, and now your stomach's upset. They call it the iron stomach. Who can last, who can continue to take in calories when you're feeling very poorly? I, I think my muscles would have gone beyond those 53 hours. But honestly, hmm. I'm not sure my stomach could have taken in one more ounce of anything.
0: Did you actually get seasick while swimming?
2: Oh, yes. You're always seasick. I mean, you know, you're bobbing around, the wind whipped up on so that first night. So throwing up, literally. Yeah, yeah, you're vomiting, and uh, you so you lose a lot. You know, oh I mean, it's, it sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it's not, it? It's not um, my kind of vacation. But, you know, the truth is, let me just say that there are times when you look up and see the four billion stars you can see literally above. You've read Stephen Hawking the night before. You have a sensation that you're swimming over the curvature of the earth. There's mm. a high mm. to being in that kind of shape and traveling across the ocean as well as your vomiting. You, you've got it all. You've <laughs> got it all. It sounds
0: like the whole package. Do you do the same stroke the whole time, or do you v- sure. vary it up?
2: No, you're trying to go from A to B. There are other swims where there is not the Gulf Stream tugging you, right. and then, you know, it's like, who cares? You know, you yeah. go as slowly as you want.
0: But you're doing a crawl stroke and a flutter yeah. kick?
2: Oh, yeah. Crawl stroke with a six-beat kick. You're trying to go from A to B in as powerful a direct-as-way as you can.
0: Give me a, a sense of... Um, the thing you thought of when you stepped on dry land was this is a team sport. Describe the flotilla that would be traveling with you across this stretch of water and the team.
2: Well, just imagine if you had been in a oh helicopter, small plane, drone, and been following our flotilla across on any of the you know crossings, you would see only one set of arms. There's only one left arm and right arm that's coming out of the sea hundreds of thousands of times. But next to me, there are two kayaks. One is carrying a shark shield, the other's carrying an antenna, and one is way off to the right, one's behind me, and they're creating an elliptical field of electricity below me that... Most sharks are bothered by. Their sensitive sonar doesn't like to come in contact with that electricity. On the other hand, Mm -hmm. a shark is hungry, 50, 60 miles offshore, hasn't eaten in a week. They'll come (laughs) right through that electricity. So then if you were in your drone camera above and watching our flotilla, you'd see a couple of divers, especially at night, under me. They're they're looking. They don't have any fatal gear. We don't kill any animal on our watch, but they've got big pieces of PVC piping. If an animal comes up too close to me and thrashes around, my divers will bump them on their sensitive snouts, move them down, move them out, so they're the divers. The boat next to me is kind of the epicenter of the activity. That's where my personal handler team is, the medical team, the shark team, the jelly fish team the navigation team they're all on that boat and believe it or not even for 53 hours they are always busy they're in crisis they're handling all kinds of nature elements they're out ahead researching where they're trying to get you know everything we can to get us across and then there are four boats that come along behind us and to the side that are kind of like the resting platform. So a couple of shark guys work hard for 90 minutes underwater against resistance. When they come up, they are fried. They go back to their boat. They relax. They get some food while another team goes under and works under me. And then the other guys come back in. So we've got a flotilla of five boats, 44 people. It's an expedition. It truly is.
0: And it's a, a team that knows how to work together, almost like a, in a pit stop in a, in a racetrack yep. or something like Very this. Very much.
2: They're in sync. And there's a, there's a chain of command, and uh, they all know what they're doing, and they handle emergencies, you know, medical, uh, navigation-wise. It's a tight team, for sure.
0: There's more with Diana Nyad on her successful 2013 swim across the Straits of Florida in just a minute. We'll also hear from naturalist Gary Ferguson, who survived a nightmare canoe incident in the white water of northern Ontario. He'll tell us how time and nature helped to heal his grief. That's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. 53 hours after she jumped into the ocean waters off Havana, Cuba, Diana Nyad climbed onto the beach at Key West in Florida. She's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we hear how she set a world record for open-ocean endurance swimming. Despite plenty of setbacks, she never gave up on her dream to set the world record and finally did it at age 64. Diana writes about the experience in her memoir, Find a Way, which is now out in paperback. You know, Diana, there must have been a lot of mind games your body was playing with you and great fatigue and boredom and uh, eurekas and uh, hallucinating. Can you talk just a second about that?
2: I have a tremendous regard For all of Earth's extreme adventurers, if you tell me you've run across the Kalahari Desert in 124 degree heat, you have my respect. And the same goes for the people who trek across Antarctica, climb Annapurna, K2, all that. But the one difference might be, I don't know what it's like at the top of the world. I, I haven't experienced, you know, altitude sickness, all that. But what's different for me is an extreme state of sensory deprivation. Your eyes aren't working well anymore. You've got fogged over goggles. You're turning your head once a second to the side. You you don't see much of anything. Your ears, you've got this tight cap over your head, trying to keep the heat in your head. And you don't hear much either. So you are in the interior of your mind Mm -hmm. in a very short time. I've been kind of a fan of lay astrophysics my whole life since I've been a kid. And so I do, I read Hawking and, and others of the you know, the cosmos writers, the night before I do these swims, and there's no place. You and I could go out to dinner forever and talk about the majesty of the universe, but when you're out there on your own steam, and you're you're in that inky water in the middle of the night, and you look up and see the galaxy, you know, from that ocean, that far from shore... You trip out on, you know, the Stephen Hawking that yes. you've read the night yes. before. So and then you're in hallucinations. I thought I saw the Taj Mahal on that last <laughs> successful swim. It was there. I, I never questioned why it was floating over there. But I was enraptured by it uh. for a long time. Uh, so, yeah, your your mind is um out there. I'm singing songs, trying to count count logarithms of numbers, uh, singing a playlist.
0: Esther from Dallas has uh, emailed us and she uh, says you make all of us baby boomer women so proud and I'm sure there's a lot of women that echo that thought uh, she asks, you know, what was your daily routine for, for training?
2: The training is what it's all about. And, and I suppose, you know, many people have said it in different ways, but it's all about preparation. I, I don't care whether you're, you know, a kid taking your SAT exam or, you know, you're, you're preparing an astronaut preparing to go into space for the first time. It's all about the no stone unturned preparation. And when we would go out to do a 14 hour swim for training, never, ever. If I come into the to the boat after a long day, maybe it's been a whipping wind. I haven't been in shape yet. 14 hours is going to be a tough day. If I come into the boat and it's only 13 hours and 58 minutes, who would care? We're the ones who make up the training schedule. I'm the one who makes it up. Who, you know, isn't 1358 the same as 14? Well, no, it's not. <laughs> You know it really isn't i once you start making it, it's like a life lesson. once you start making concessions about anything, you'll next time you'll make a bigger concession and then a bigger one, and pretty soon you you don't even respect your goal anymore. so um the work in the training was grueling, and frankly, the book. You know the part I'm proudest most. I'm proud of that book. When mm-hmm. I pass a bookstore and I see it on a shelf, I say to myself, "There's a true grit story," mm-hmm. and I I got to live it out loud. Mm-hmm. But what I'm most proud of is the training log in the back. If you just I want to that. flip through that, yeah, it's <laughs> it's it is badass that <laughs> training log. I tell you, man.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Diana Nyad, and it's about her epic swim from Cuba to Florida. Her book tells the whole story in a, in a very intimate and inspirational way. It's called Find a Way. Diana, you went to Cuba a couple of years after your swim on Obama's historic trip with our president. What was that like?
2: I did get to be part of the entourage, although everybody asked me if I got to fly on Air Force One. And I said, no, they, they almost made me swim over. That was about the <laughs> only way I could get there. Uh, but actually, before that, uh, the year after the swim, actually a few months after I was invited into the Oval Office, I'm a huge admirer of President Obama's. And he told me that he really did look at our swim as a gesture, as an early gesture of one person leaving one country and uh, just a few hours later, touching the of the other country and making a gesture of bringing our two nations together. And when I was in Havana with part of the uh, Obama entourage, I was sitting listening to Raul Castro's speech to the Cuban people. And I, I speak a pretty decent Spanish, but the Cubans speak very quickly. And he was talking to the Cubans, so he was speaking very quickly, President Castro was. And he was going, Diana Nayad. And I went, Oh, I I, thought I just heard my name. And the Cuban woman next to me said, yes, he Raul, Raul, Raul Castro just said that if that woman, if that extraordinary athlete can swim across these shark-infested waters and make it to the other side, surely we can extend the olive branch and make it across those waters ourselves. So I'll tell you something. Our team is proud as punch to have been a tiny little moment of our nations making, a, making a, you know the first steps of reconciliation toward oh, each other.
0: It's a beautiful metaphor. And I, I can imagine Obama thinking, this is a, a beautiful example, and if you can swim it, we can do it. Uh, yeah. So congratulations on that.
2: Thank you. Thank you. It means a lot.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Diana Nyad. I'm getting all caught up in this. Her book is Find a Way, and it tells the story of her epic swim, 111 miles from Cuba to Florida. Diana, you you made a point to close your book with a quote from Henry David Thoreau. Uh, What you get by achieving your goals is not as important as what you become by achieving your goals. Why is that resonating with you?
2: It was the whole point of the Cuba swim. You know, I did. You've mentioned during this interview that I I did other swims. I was a distance open swimmer. But Cuba was never in that category. It wasn't some athletic event. It wasn't to set some record at all. It was about living life large. It's who am I? Am I the person I can have a high regard for? Am I a person who commits to a big dream that maybe is untouchable, maybe can never be done, but it's worth the journey of who I might discover within myself, of tapping every fiber of my potential? Yes, even if I had never made it to that destination, the journey was worthwhile, and mm. that's what Thoreau's referring to. Yes, yeah, some great things have come from the Cuba swim. I mm. got a chance to write this memoir, blah blah blah, but it's not about that. is I am a person who dreamed big, went out and chased that dream, you know, and, and would not give up on it. It's the old mm. Teddy Roosevelt thing. I'd rather dare greatly and fail than to sit on the sidelines and be the cold, timid soul who will never know success because he's not willing to know failure. That's that's what that Cuba swim represented to me. And that's why it's resonated with so many people. Nobody else is going to go swim from Cuba to Florida, but many people want to chase their dreams. And they know that just not giving up not quitting is what's going to get them to the other side of whatever their dream is.
0: There's so many people that can be inspired by that. My sister, who's you're in my generation, she's an iditarod racer, and and iditarod oh. racers know that whether you win it or finish last or don't even finish, but give it your all, you're a champion, and that's such yeah. an inspiration.
2: Yeah, I believe it. I do.
0: Diana Nyad. What a great book, Find a Way, the inspiring story of one woman's pursuit of a lifelong dream. Several tries, 35 years, and you did it. Thanks so much for sharing your story.
2: Rick, you are a pleasure to talk to. Thank you so much. Happy travels.
0: You too. It only took a moment for the icy white water of a river in the Northwoods to change Gary Ferguson's life forever. I'd like to take a few minutes with you right now to revisit an interview we recorded a couple years ago with Gary that includes some material we didn't originally have time to feature here on Travel with Rick Steves. It's a very intimate conversation, as Gary explains how he was able to let the wilderness heal his grief after losing his wife of 25 years on a springtime canoe trip. Gary writes about it in The Carry Home, Lessons from the American Wilderness.
1: In May of 2005, my first wife Jane and I, and we had been married just shy of 25 years and were constant wilderness companions for each other. We had been up on holiday, if you will, in northern Ontario doing some canoeing, some whitewater canoeing. We were pretty experienced at that particular sport. And we stopped uh, on a rainy day to do what was supposed to be the equivalent of a couple-hour walk in the park on a river called the Kopka River. And unfortunately, there had been an ice storm in the area not long before, and trees had fallen down. And so at a portage place, and a portage place is where you get out and carry your canoe around something that's unrunnable. In this case, it was a Class 5 Furious Rapid, uh, had been moved because of this ice storm closer to the head of the rapid. And there had been some historically high rains the week before that created strange hydraulics. And long story short, we got swept into that furious rapid. Mm -hmm. We were uh, tipped over about 100 yards into the 300-yard stretch of whitewater. We were immediately separated. I ended up getting caught in a recirculation pool a couple times, which is a pool that has a backwash that holds you under the water. And I really thought that was going to be it for me. I was finally coughed out over a six-foot waterfall. My leg went into a rock crevice and broke in several places, and then I was finally washed out into a flush pond. I waited for Jane for a while. She didn't show up, and so I crawled several miles out to get help, and uh, her body was found three days later in the Kopka River in that whitewater. Now, curiously, to me at least, several days before this tragic accident, she turned to me out of the blue, and this was not a conversation we'd had in over a decade, said, now, you know, if something ever happens to me, where I want my ashes scattered in these five wilderness places. And I thought it very strange to bring that up out of nowhere. And I ticked off those five places. And uh, a few days later, she was gone. And in many ways, that request that she made to have her ashes scattered in those wild places was significant in my moving through this terribly difficult period in starting from a dark, hopeless hole and ending up years later because of these wilderness areas and because of her request. I would say in a life that's more patient, more compassionate, more generative, and I'm more able to, I think, be in the present moment than I've ever been before. So it really turned out to be a a precious gift uh, that she gave me by that request.
0: We're talking with Gary Ferguson. Gary's written a book called The Carry Home, Lessons from the American Wilderness. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Sally is calling in from Lavelle in Pennsylvania.
4: Sally, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. I have a little story to share. Um, The day after I survived a heart-wrenching divorce, I had a very heavy heart and yet kept my commitment as a volunteer naturalist guide on a whale-watching boat to Anacapa Island in Southern California. And the day was rather uneventful until late in the day, the captain out of nowhere exclaimed, We are in for a real treat. And he turns on a recording of Mozart, and we're suddenly surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands, of dolphins on every side, as far as our eyes could see, just. Literally several feet off the sides of the boat. And as I leaned into the breeze, I couldn't help but laugh with delight with the sea teeming with all these amazing creatures. And at the end of the afternoon, as the guests departed, this one woman came up to me and gave me a huge hug and said, Thank you so much. You really made my day. And I was perplexed and said, But why? And she said, It's your joy. And in that moment, I marveled how the deepest sorrow of my life was intermingling with this sublime joy that nature brought me that day, and it didn't take away the the pain in any way, but it gave me a sense of moving into the future in a hope that there was healing and that we could experience the hardest things in life and simultaneously experience the great joy and beauty and grace that the natural world brings to us.
1: What a beautiful image that is. You know, it reminded me of something the Paiute culture said frequently, and that is that beauty and chaos stand together. And that it's a reminder that so many times of our lives, we we have to hold both the challenging circumstances and right alongside those challenges are so many beautiful things. I think sometimes we make the mistake of trying to pick just the beautiful ones, but it's actually being able to hold both at the same time as as Sally was able to do on that day that, that really does make life livable.
0: Gary, in your book, you write about wilderness therapy. Is this related to that?
1: Yes, uh, it is in a a very big way. I happened to write a book called Shouting at the Sky a number of years ago where I followed a very compassionate-based, therapeutic-based wilderness program in southern Utah for at-risk teens who were struggling with very severe drug addictions and other issues, and they spent eight weeks in in the wilderness. And when I got to the end of my time with them, I followed them for a year afterward and asked them why that program worked Where others didn't, they were really veterans of every kind of imaginable intervention from suicide uh, lockdowns to drug rehab centers and you name it. But this program actually worked at a rate of about three times better than those traditional programs. And I asked them why. And they had three common responses. One was that it was the first place I've ever been where what I did mattered nature forced a certain sort of personal responsibility if you were going to be comfortable and they shared that responsibility and their gifts to meet it with their their fellow hikers the second thing they said was it was the first time i've known beauty which i thought was really astonishing that a person could get to 17 and never have known beauty but the third thing was that it was the first place i felt like i was part of something bigger than myself and so those gifts were, in their minds, what allowed them to, to heal from very, very serious uh, dysfunction mm-hmm. in their lives and, and claim their own personal power. So, uh, yes, it reminds me very much Sally's story of, of those kids.
4: While, while I realized that the heavy rock of sorrow in my heart wouldn't be there forever and there'd be better days ahead, I didn't expect the better day to be so sublime and the very next day. And I, I just think that it taught me in life that even if we are in deep sorrow, there exists this great beauty and to allow our hearts to expand to receive both of those and not, not fear them and just to receive them and know that there is grace in, in the deep pain and there's grace in the great joy and both are there for the absorbing and enriching of
0: our lives. Well, thousands of leaping dolphins with Mozart, that's just like a chorus that says, pick <laughs> oh it up and move goodness. along and <laughs> embrace life. So, Sally, I mean, how could I,
4: how could I help but like, laugh with delight and just I overflow love with I joy? I just love
0: that image, Sally. Thank you for sharing.
4: <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, bye now. Thank you, bye-bye.
0: Gary, just hours before your wife Jane's death, it, you, you described it was the last peaceful moment you had with her in nature. What happened?
1: We were on a system of lakes broken by streams, When this happened literally minutes before we found ourselves in that furious water. The sun was breaking through after a morning of rain. Two loons surfaced right next to the canoe, and loons were an especially wonderful part of the natural world for Jane. She had gone up to the Boundary Waters area when she was in uh, her freshman year of college and worked as an intern up at a lodge there. And loons became a, a great comfort and source of you know beauty and, and community and mystery for her. So two loons surfaced right next to the boat, which was very unusual behavior because loons are quite shy of humans. And she was so thrilled by this event and with the sun coming out from behind the clouds that she laid her paddle down on her lap and she looked up to the sky and she said, thank you, universe, uh, and these were very nearly the last words Jane said. Uh, I am far enough away from the event now to look back and say, I'm so happy that that's, uh, that's what her last day looked like.
0: Gary Ferguson, The Carry Home, Lessons from the American Wilderness.
1: Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakely and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at National Public Radio for their help this week. You'll find more to each week's show online. Look behind the radio tab at ricksteves.com. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.